We're going to start in the book of Galatians this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open up there. If you don't, there's probably one right in front of you. And about three quarters of the way back in the scriptures is a book called Galatians. We're going to start in Galatians 5. And we've been in this series now for two weeks. It's just a four-week series called Advent Conspiracy. And I love the song we just sang, Lord, we ask that you would come by now. Anyone remember what the word Advent means? It's a Latin word. Impress me. What does it mean? Close. It means coming or arrival. So the word Advent is this idea of celebrating the coming or the arrival. And what we talked about last week was this, that it's not just the arrival and the coming that happened 2,000 years ago. Do we celebrate that? Of course we do. Is that a part of what we're, we're about as a church? Absolutely. But it's also, also this idea of a second Advent. It's the second coming that's, that we're looking forward to, that's going to right the wrongs. And that's, that's the other part of the Advent season that's so exciting. Remember last week we just talked about this, the, this idea that everyone in the, in the manger scene, so take a typical manger scene, there's one in the back for you, you can look at it later on, and think about how each one of those individuals in the manger scene needed something to be unveiled to them. They didn't come to the scene and just have knowledge of things. There was the angel Gabriel who would come and talk to Mary and say, Mary, you're going to be a part of a way bigger story than you ever dreamed or imagined. And there were magi that came and there was revelation to them, not just about this son that was to fulfill the prophecies, but also that they ought to go home a different way because they were in trouble. And there's all this unveiling that goes on. And our prayer last week was this, God, would you, as a church body, would you unveil the glory of this season to us this year? Don't let it just be December and let it be dictated by all the things that we see and that flash by our hearts and minds but would you really unveil your glory this, this coming season? And that's, that's part of the prayer of what we talked about with this whole idea of, of worship fully. The other thing that we talked about was this, was putting down our burdens and lifting up praise this coming season. Now, I'm not going to ask for a personal individual report card, but just think about one week ago, how are we doing with that? Are we laying down our burdens this Christmas season or are we continuing to heap on and add on more? Is it business as usual? Is it same old, same old December? Or are we starting to get it through? It's going to be a different kind of a year this year. My prayer for us as a church body is that it would be a different kind of December. That God would teach us things and show us things that we've never ever heard or learned before. This week is all about spending less. Spend less. Advent conspiracy is quite simple. The idea is to worship fully. Spend less. Give more. And love all. That's where we're going. That's the whole four-week series right there. But, but why we're starting in Galatians is this. I don't want to move off of worship fully too quickly. Because in a way, we need to keep coming back to worship, don't we? As we start getting into spending less, can't that very quickly deteriorate into some kind of a pharisaical mindset? That says, look at us. We're the church that spends less at Christmas. And all of a sudden, it can somehow morph into being about us. And that sours the whole picture. And so I don't want to move off of worship too quickly. We're going to keep coming back to it. Look at Galatians chapter 5 for a moment. Starting in verse 6, we're just going to read verse 6. It says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Now that may seem like a really strange place to start this morning. But here's why I'm bringing it out. Without going into all of what that means, here's basically what that's talking about. That's describing what life is like if you live under the law. 
If you live under the law, the law dictates that you live perfectly. And since none of us do, it requires a sacrifice. And that's the whole picture of Jesus coming and dying on the cross. It's why we're saved. It's why we're in right relationship with God. But it says, in Christ Jesus now, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. But listen, listen to the second part of it. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I bring up this verse because of this. Everything that we go from here with these next three weeks must be motivated out of love for God. It must be motivated by worship. Or again, the whole thing sours. All of a sudden, you begin to be puffed up and prideful about what you are doing or aren't doing, what your neighbors are or aren't doing. You start to keep the scorecard, and it gets really wrong. All of a sudden, it's no longer honoring to God. It may have the appearance of righteousness, but your hearts and and minds are really far from God. So let's be motivated. As we talk this morning about spending less at Christmas time, can we just agree to be motivated by love for God? And that it's this faith that saves us. Nothing that you do this December, nothing that you commit or stop doing this December is going to somehow bring you into God's graces more. And I, you need to be absolutely convinced of that. I need to be absolutely convinced of that. That the deeds that are done, that the commitments that are made, are not to somehow get on God's good side or make Him love me a little bit more. Or to counteract these wrong things that I already know I've done. Because the moment you start getting into that is is the moment we start preaching a false gospel or living a false gospel. And that's not what we're about. So let's be motivated by the grace of God. Here are three agreements that I want to agree to as we start. First of all is this. Some of you have your Christmas shopping done. I may say things. I may draw out scriptures today that will convict you and say, wow, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Can we agree this morning that you are not responsible for what you don't know? Right? So if today I discover that wearing brown shirt and black shoes is an absolute fashion faux pas, one of you would graciously and lovingly come to me and say, Dave, I have some news to tell you. It's not pretty. But now that you've told me, I don't need to feel bad about wearing it today. I didn't know about it today. Now, if every week after I start doing the same fashion faux pas, we have an issue. Okay, So let's just agree that, that we're not responsible for what we don't know. But at the same time, moving on from that is this, that, that grace is needed both, both on ourselves and what we preach to ourselves and the message we preach to ourselves. It's also needed to other people in our families. It's also needed to other people in this church. That grace is needed for me and extended from me as we move forward in this whole area of spending less. And that we really need the grace of God to, to get this right. The, to say, say it kind of a different way is this. Let's not cry over spilled milk, okay? But at the same time, let's not just keep knocking milk over. Year after year, doing the same things. Let's look at this a little bit differently. Third agreement is this. I don't know if this is true, but perhaps in a crowd this size, there's someone out there who's building a shed, building some kind of a barn, and this title has you super, super nervous. Can you just relax a little bit? You may be okay to keep building your barn or your little storage thing that you got. There's like some deeper meanings here than just the surface, okay? A little bit like Jesus' parables. Um, Here's what Advent Conspiracy is about. It's about wrestling with how... To celebrate Jesus' arrival, Jesus' coming, and His future coming in a way that would honor Jesus. 
If your birthday is in December, would you just stand up for a moment? Everyone whose birthday is in December, stand up right now. I happen to know for a fact that there are a couple. Okay, stay standing for a moment. Now, those of you who, who have birthdays in December, um, let me just tell you how your birthday party would be if I planned it. Okay? Your birthday cake would be angel food cake. It would have a rich, dark chocolate frosting. Okay? Uh, your birthday party would probably involve going to the beach and playing at the beach in some way, shape, or form. Because I happen to really like the beach. Um, your gifts would center around most of the things that I like and such. Okay? Now, this sounds really ludicrous. How many of you would enjoy that birthday party whose, whose birthday is in December? Raise your hand if you would enjoy that, if that sounds appealing. No one? Come on. Work with a little bit. We have a connection. Thank you, Denise. A little bit. Okay. You guys can go ahead and sit down. Here's the thing. I know for a fact Fred Stonehouse is over here going, we ain't celebrating my birthday that way. <laughs> and yet, isn't it a little bit weird if we celebrate Jesus' birthday with our wishes? Isn't that odd? Wouldn't that be strange if I came to your birthday party and I dictated how it was according to my likes? So here's what Advent Conspiracy is, to kind of think about it a different way. It's saying, how can we celebrate the guest of honor, Jesus' birthday, in a way that Jesus would enjoy, that, that has to do with His wants, His likes, His preferences, and not mine. That's what we're talking about. That's just kind of a different way of looking about it. We want to celebrate Jesus' birthday His way. Now, we're going to have some fun this morning. Um, I Just for kicks sometime... Uh, Type in um, truth in advertising into a Google search engine or whatever search engine you, you, you enjoy. Just some funny things out there. Um, truth in advertising. I'm just going to give you a few advertising realities. I don't think there's anything to fill in in your bulletin this morning on this one, but you can just jot down some things if you'd like. First of all, truth in advertising is not true. Okay? Someone put it this way, that advertising is legalized lying. Has anyone else... Gotten a sense of this before? Okay, I'm not alone on that. Once in a great while, uh, truth is stated in advertising. But even when truth, even, even when truth is stated in advertising, you know what the aim is? To get your money. So once in a while, you'll, you'll, you'll come across an ad that is being actually true, but still they're trying to get your money. I want to go to this store. I love it. Things over a dollar. <laughs> that is the coolest thing. We've all been to the dollar store, at least I have, I live there, but, um, but this is the store, it's things over a dollar, that's just, I like that, they still want my money. And then this one just hits, per, you know, really close to home, um, <laughs> sometimes advertisers are, are doing things to, to try to draw you in. Let me just say this, I don't know if anyone in here works in the advertising industry, but I've never, I've never trained to be one, I've never, I've never been one, but I, but, I, but I agree with this statement that ad creators, those who, those who put investment into creating ads, are trained to, to, to do at least a couple of things. One of the things that they're trained to do is to convince you that your wants are actually needs. And here's one of the ways that you see that. If you go to an affluent society like ours, a lot of money in our society, okay, then the wants and needs look a certain way. 
But if you go to a more impoverished country, a, money, a country that has less money than us, and you were to go there, you would see that they would, they would keep the wants a little bit more reasonable. They'd be just, just above here. We might view those as, of course we should have those. But in that country, it's scaled back a little bit because to advertise the same way to a rich country, to a poor country, wouldn't make any sense. So one of their jobs is to convince you that your wants actually are needs. And if they're needs, then you, have, you can bypass conscience that says, maybe we should slow down here and not get this. You say, no, 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 this is a need. This, this goes for, for, for parents, right? Parents, especially new parents, listen up, Jonathan and Bertha. Um, you, know, you know what? New parents uh, are, are advertised this way, that your child deserves Right? And that's a really powerful motivator because you say, man, I want to provide the best thing for my kid. I want to provide the best experience for my kid. I wouldn't let my kid settle for anything less than the best. And so we buy the, you know, the wipes that have quilted cotton right into the wipe, you know. Now, as you have more and more kids, what happens to that? Yeah, they're lucky if they get a hard, crusty paper towel down there. You know, it's like... Look, we're not buying the quilted things. That went out with baby two. You know, we, we figured out that that's not really true. But, but that's the deal. Is they, 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 they come at us with these messages. Here's another message. Another message, go ahead and look at the screen for, for a second, is that by creating a distaste for the old. Okay, this is a billboard that, that's talking about uh, Diamond Shreddy's cereal. And they just put it right on there. Old, boring. Okay. And then, and then not, not only do they create a distaste for the old, they actually prey on kind of this built-in lust for the new. We have a built-in lust for new. I don't know if you know that, but it's true. And here's how they do it. They say, new is, ex- is exciting. Old, boring. New is exciting. Now I need someone about the age of 10 to tell me what the problem is with this ad. See if there's some truth in it. Lindsay, talk to me. Yeah, diamond shreddies or square shreddies on their side. Okay? Lindsay, how old are you? Thank you. A 10-year-old can figure this out. But something in us drives by that we're like, oh, diamond shreddies. New improved taste. Like the old taste was terrible. Now we're admitting it. We've, we've, we've dialed it a little bit. Now it tastes a little better. In six months, it'll be a new improved taste after that. On and on it goes. And what, the, what they're doing is this. There's a certain sense. Realize this. Whether it's sporting equipment, technology, your car, your clothes, your household items, the food you eat. There is a certain mentality that says, let's create a distaste for the old that that most likely is working just fine. And let's kind of prey on this this general lust that people have for all things new. Let me fire off a few stats. You can write them down if they ring true to you uh, or not. But there's different studies that, that can, you know, kind of change this around. But in general, they say that, that the average person sees between one to 3,000 advertisements per day. Per day. Now, I had a hard time with that. I thought, I'm, you know, maybe that's not true for everyone. But I've been really, really paying attention. Now, let me just tell you, if you're watching a sports game and there's a pitcher and he's pitching a ball, what's all around the banner right at TV height? Advertisements. Even if you don't watch a ton of TV, if you use the, the uh, computer, you get advertisements, right? 
Isn't it true that just all the screen real estate that's there, it's just doing things? The most annoying ones, I don't have these very often, but one just floated across my screen and it had the tiniest Xbox to close it. And you're supposed to like chase it around to try and close the thing, but they're hoping, I think, this is brilliant, they're hoping you miss and click on their ad and it opens a new page or something, but then it came to rest and I'm like, zap, gotcha. But the deal is, is that there's just real estate everywhere. How about in just the, the public spaces that we live? I mean, just drive from your house to your school, your house to your work, from church to home. Just count the advertisements that you see. doesn't mean that you have to look at it and read it every time, but your brain is picking up on these things, messages, right, over and over. Ask this, what is the message that's being served up? Most advertisements are smart enough not to lie outright, okay? This one's pretty bad. Diamond Shreddies was, was pretty bad. But most of them seek to simply kind of manipulate the truth or even conceal part of the truth that would clue you in that you don't need this new product. How about this? Much of advertising techniques are the same as that of war propaganda and politics. Go think about that for about five minutes and you'll start to see that I'm right. There's a certain sense where they just start to do bandwagon techniques that say, if you aren't on this, you're missing out. Well, I better get one. What, what drives this toy of the year mentality, right? That the supply and demand all of a sudden start to do crazy things at Christmas time because somehow you've got to get this toy to make your kid happy that year. Next year, no one will care about that toy. Here's another one. You don't even have to like the ad. You don't even have to like the product. Uh, we learned uh, our Financial Peace University, Dave Ramsey does this incredible thing just talking about marketing and all the brilliant stuff that goes in. It is a multi-billion dollar industry. You don't think they're spending tons of money to find which color triggers which things in your brain, which scents like smell good to you in a room that kind of calms you down if they're selling a certain product, which sounds they want you hearing as they walk in a store, where the products are, are located, all that kind of stuff. Have you noticed some stores that are designed in such a way to get you lost and have a hard time coming back? One of the most basic ones that Ramsey points out is that back in the 50s, they figured out if they put the absolute daily needs like milk and that kind of thing in the back and eggs, then it forces you to walk through the whole store to get your needs and then come back. At some point in history, they decided, wow, if we put gum and candy and things right on the aisles while you're waiting in line, you'll be more prone to that. You know who's made an art form of that is fries. Fries went crazy with that idea. They built like a mile-long line, and they have everything there. You're like, wow, I need a new mechanical candle. You know, whatever. It's like, that's crazy, you know. Like, five minutes ago, you didn't need that, but, you know, 101 registers, but you still stay in that line. It's brilliant. Realize that there's a, a, a company that's, that's after you in this. I want to just offer you this exercise with advertisements. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, talk about three different sins. It talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. What if you took those three sins and just as a family, just as an individual, made a game of it and said, which of the three sins listed in 1 John chapter 2 are being thrown at me, thrust at me, tempted to me through this advertisement? Let me throw out a couple to you. First is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is, you know, the pizza commercial. It's never stale, old, cold pizza. It's like ooey and goozy. They don't show piles of oil on it because that would be distasteful. But they show just amount of glistening to it and they're pulling it away, right? The cheese is there. And all of a sudden you're like, pizza. You know, you don't even try to stay consciously, but it's there. The, the other one that, that works for this is, um, 
is, is movies. You know, you can go to the movies and say, well, movies are kind of expensive, but we'll just go to the movies. We won't get any of the snacks, because snacks are like, you know, four, like Disneyland snacks, right? Same snack, four times the price, you know, half the fun. So you go, like, we're not getting any snacks, but you're sitting there watching the previews or whatever, and that slide comes up, and they've taken, like, you know, a piece of popcorn, blown it up a million times, and somehow it looks way better at that point, and you're like, oh, popcorn, you know, and someone next to you is like, you're like, ooh, and everything's firing, you know, and, and then you're like, but that would make me thirsty, and then what's the next slide? Oh, Icy cold Coke. little piece of ice sliding down the side. I need it. I'll be back. It doesn't matter if I miss the first part. I need some popcorn. This is appealing. Trust me. This is appealing to the lust of the flesh. I love the sleep train person. Ethan pointed out to me one time. We're watching the sleep train commercial. And this guy, I think it's sleep train. It's some mattress commercial. They're sleeping up on this point at the far side of the Golden Gate Bridge. But here's what's brilliant about that. You look at that. The kid, the, the, this person is sleeping like a baby. Have you ever been to that point? It's freezing cold and windy all the time. And it's like, man, I mean, if they can sleep through that, maybe I can sleep through my three-year-old's fits. You know, it's like, and there's a certain thing that just says, I think I need that mattress. Here's another one, lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes is this, clothes that fit the airbrush model perfectly. And you see that and you're like, maybe if I bought that clothing, piece of clothing, I would look like that. Lust of the eyes talks about this. It's that, you know, it's that super, super shiny. It's like superhuman shiny little iPod that they put in your hand. You know, and somehow it's the brightest red metallic you've ever seen or held. And, and it fits right in your hand perfectly at the Apple store. Or for some people, perhaps it has to do with uh, something else. How about the boastful pride of life? The boastful pride of life appeals to everything selfish in us. This idea that I deserve it. You deserve a break today. Remember that one? Yeah. Uh, many people use that. I try to pick up on this. Starbucks about three or four years ago wrote this thing um, that said you deserve it. And what it tricks your brain into saying is, yeah, I do kind of deserve it. You're like, no, wait a minute. I don't really deserve it. I'm just here to buy a cup of coffee. But it, but it, it just kind of, kind of throws a switch to kind of get you tracking a certain way. It's this idea that, you know, I have a driving machine, but I don't have the ultimate driving machine. So as you drive in your driving machine, you see the ultimate driving machine and you're like, I deserve it. I deserve to accelerate faster than that guy. And so you go out and you buy the ultimate driving machine and on and on it goes. You know what the one thing that all advertisers have in common? There's, there's so many different methods, so many different products, but there's one unifying message. Here it is. Spend more. Isn't that true? You show me an ad that doesn't say spend more. And so that's a really powerful thing as we're talking about what? Spending less. The reality is as we walk into church today, we have been bombarded this last week. Whether you've tried to or not, whether you feel fairly insulated from that or not, you have been bombarded with a message that says spend more. And the second that we leave this place, I don't think there's anything in this room that, that, that says, well, besides the screen, this says spend more. But the second you leave this place, you'll be bombarded with messages that say spend more. It will come at you from a thousand different things and 900 of them may not make any sense, but it just takes that one, doesn't it, to kind of click with you and go, yeah, that's the one. It's like hooks in a water for a fish. There are so many hooks out there. How about some spending realities? How do you fight the more monster? How do we fight this more monster? Here's just a couple of spending realities you can jot down. One is this. Money buys stuff and money buys some fun, but money never buys happiness 
Money never buys joy. Money never buys peace. And money never buys relationship. Right? So is money bad? Of course not. But, but can money turn into something bad? Of course it can. In fact, Jesus warns us it can turn into our Lord and false Savior. And whether we know it or not, we can devote our lives to that, seeking after buying things that can't be bought. Uh, here's another spending reality that we have to pay attention to, and that is that the rich have a harder time in spiritual matters. Jesus talked about the, the camel passing through the eye of the needle. Remember that? That was in relation to the rich and how hard it, it will be for the rich to get in. And that inverted everyone's system at the time. Thinking if the rich can't get in, what chance do I have? But here's what you start to understand. You start to understand that people who come in the same exact clothes to, to meet with you seven days in a row down in Mexico, you know what? As they're praying, as they're asking God for their daily bread, they live daily on a miracle from somewhere else. They're not as trapped by getting distracted by shiny things. They don't have the luxury, in some ways, of getting distracted by shiny things. And so it is that the rich have a harder time in spiritual matters. Here's a third one. Greater treasure is found in giving than in receiving. That's said by Jesus. That's either a true statement or it's not a true statement. I've come to believe that it's true. Open your Bibles to Luke 12. We're going to hang out in Luke 12 most of the rest of the morning. In Luke 12, chapter, uh, verse 13, Jesus says the following. There's a crowd of thousands, it says, at the start of Luke 12 that are here. The Pharisees are around. And then verse 13 says this, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you two? Or between you? And then he said to them, Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The context here is an argument over money. But Jesus takes the, the argument, and like he so often does, doesn't he? We think the parameter is here. I want to love my neighbor. I want to get into heaven. I want to talk about the kingdom of God. I want to argue about money. And Jesus kind of lifts the playing field way, way, way out to here. He's not really talking about an argument for money. He's talking about a fight for life. And he's giving some really solemn warnings in this passage. It's not unlike our discussion today. Starting in verse, or continuing in verse, uh, in verse 16, it says this. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20 says this, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then he adds just this poignant sentence. This is how it will be for, with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. That's the message of spend less here. That's where we're going with 
things this morning. This well-off farmer wanted Jesus to solve his problems. He didn't come to him to heal his covetous heart. That's, that's what he really needed. He needed to be healed from a covetous heart, but he wanted to have his problem solved. You know what Jesus knew? Jesus knew that money wasn't the answer. In fact, isn't it true that more money often causes more problems? Some of you have walked through an inheritance thing, and that can get really, really messy. Some of you have watched played out publicly you know, actors and people with prenups and divorces and things going on. And more money often just adds more headache and more problems. Jesus knew that. The question for us then is, how are we doing? How is America doing? What's America's progress report here? Are we building barns? And again, you could translate that for storage units. Are we storing up for ourselves, or are we being rich toward God? Now, one of the parts of Advent Conspiracy that so struck me and so grabbed a hold of me was this. There was a part in the video that we watched a couple of weeks ago that talked about spending at Christmas time. Now, because I have a very patient wife, I happen to know that in this jar is an exact number of M&M's. And aside from my family, someone want to guess how many M&M's are in there? Just take a random guess. 952. Uh, Daniel Henderson. How, how many? 506. One more. 600. Okay. Um, there are exactly 900 M&M's in here. Good guess. That was phenomenal. You don't win them, though. Um, <laughs> Each, each M&M represents $1 billion. Okay? This is $1 billion right here. America alone, not worldwide, but America alone will spend this Christmas season $450 billion. Here's two years worth of Christmas. Okay? You get the picture? Okay. So... Two years worth of Christmas. I'm going to eat one just to show you what a billion dollars tastes like. Good. wasn't worth it, though. Um, I'm going to ask for... I'm going to ask for Lindsay Cummins to come up here for a minute. Come on up, Lindsay. Come on up here. The other telling part of the video was this. While Americans will spend $450 billion on Christmas in one year, the cost to solve the clean water problem. Come on, right up here, Lindsay. Thank you. You're such a good sport. I always know I can pick on Lindsay. Um, it's okay. It's got a lid. The cost to build wells such that the entire world can have clean water to drink from is estimated at $10 billion. Okay? So I've taken, I've taken two years' worth of, of Christmas spending and put it in a jar here. Okay? I want you to see that and look at that. Would you do me a favor and just kind of just kind of hold it up like this, okay? Hold it up like that. Kind of like the Lion King at the end there. Yeah. Now, just just kind of for comparison, let me just show you. Actually, I'll just leave the lid on. Here's here's 20 M&Ms right here. That's it. So let's say that 10 million was a really bad or 10 billion was a really bad estimate to get clean water to the world. Let's double it, shall we? Here it is, clean water for the world. 20 M&M's, 900 M&M's. Now, here's what I want to do something, just, just kind of for, for sake of illustration. 
Lindsay, I'm going to give you that jar, okay? And the contents of the jar. Okay, so you get to have, you get to have all of that. Um, happy you is correct. Now, let me ask you this. Here's what's going to happen. Um, if you're under the age of 16, would you stand up for a minute? If you're a child in here under the age of 16, just stand up for a minute. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Uh, the rest of the kids have to share these 20 M&Ms. Okay? So, listen. Listen. Listen, kids. After you take the bite, just kind of wipe it off because there's going to be some saliva on there for the next person. Okay? I'm sorry. But the rest of you are going to get the 20 while my buddy Lindsay here is going to chomp on 900 M&Ms. Okay? Keep standing just for one minute, kids. Now, you're right. 899. Thank you, Don. Now, I have a, I have a proposition for you, okay? For, um, for, for $5 billion, you can buy off of me some Dixie Cups that you could then take, and, and my wife, Mrs. Carlson, would help you kind of scoop some out, and each kid in this room could have like a Dixie Cup of, of M&M's, and you could share it, or the choice is yours, or you could take all of those, and we'll just share these, okay? <laughs> so you think about it for a second. So these are, these are the world's most expensive Dixie Cups, okay? They cost $5 billion. But to have them, all of a sudden, you would have a tool that would then kind of, kind of spread the wealth a little bit. Do you, want to, do you want to buy these off me, or do you want to take those back to your chair, and we'll just spread these around? Bye, Give it up for Lindsay. All right, you do me a favor, Lindsay. You put that down right there. You leave five M&Ms on that chair for me, and these are yours, and these are yours, okay? You do that. Mrs. Carlson will help you. Kids, go ahead and sit down, and you can start passing those out from over here. In fact, I'll tell you what. Mrs. Carlson is just going to be brilliant here and help me out. But I still want my $5 billion. <laughs> All right. Powerful picture, isn't it? Isn't it powerful just to see that and to think about the choice that's facing 10 years old, right, Lindsay? Yeah, a 10-year-old. And And... And Lindsay could have grabbed that whole thing. She didn't know she was going to do this this morning or not. She could have grabbed that whole thing and sat there and, and eaten her M&M's. Now, she would have been sick on two accounts. She would have been, she would have been physically sick from eating 900 M&M's. In fact, I have a hunch mom and dad wouldn't have let that go on. But here's the deal. She, she, would have, she would have had a sick heart, wouldn't she? I mean, she would feel terrible watching her kids chewing on a little M&M here and there. That's the picture I want to drive home for us as we think about spending less. Can we take the lens off of ourselves and say, but what would that mean for me? What would that mean for my Christmas? We've always done it a certain way. Take the lens off of yourself for a minute and put the lens somewhere else. And it starts to paint a pretty powerful picture. The verdict of America is this. I think we may be the rich fools who failed the test. I think we may be in the end. If we were to have judgment day today, I think we might be considered a nation that were the rich fools. We kept building more and more and taking more and more and more and building bigger barns. All the while having our lives demanded of us. One thing I'm not going to do this morning is this. I'm not trying to vilify the rich people 
in this room. We're not trying to vilify the rich people in a nation. I'm also not trying to somehow elevate or idolize or make a hero out of poor people. Here's what the Bible teaches pretty plainly. There are two kinds of each. There are foolish and wise rich people. There are foolish and wise poor people. There are evil and righteous rich people. There are evil and righteous poor people. So I don't want to... I don't want to... Don't, don't hear me saying things I'm not saying here. What I do want to say is this. This whole idea that to him who's been given much, much is required is a, is a, true, straight, a, a, a true statement. If you... Don't think of your neighbor, your spouse, your parents, your child, or your churchmate here this morning. Think about you for a minute. If you are more concerned with your standard of living than other people simply living, I think Jesus' message would be the same. Watch out. Watch out for the greed that takes life. If you and I are concerned more about our standard of living than other people simply staying alive, watch out. Be on your guard would be the message. I believe that Christians can and should lead the way out of the rampant accumulation of stuff and instead run toward being rich toward God. So to stop heading this way and to run toward what it looks like to be rich toward God. Christians can and should lead the way in that. Christians can and are leading the way in some various areas. I talked with someone who runs a huge mission downtown. He says that other staffers who are not Christians understand the picture. Christians, far and away, are the most ones who come down and volunteer. And they treat people as if they're clients, not just poor people that they're going to kind of do a little something for. I love that report back. That's how it ought to be. In the adoption world, I know it's exactly the same way. No one will cover this in mainline media. Very few cover it in media at all. But Christians are leading the charge in the whole world of adoption and orphanages around the world. That's the way it ought to be. That's our picture to grab and run with. We understand that. Shouldn't it be the same way with this whole idea of overconsumption and fighting consumerism? I think the answer is yes. To put it another way, live, live more simply so that others may simply live. Let's talk about a new American tradition. If the old American tradition has to do with accumulating more, spending $450 billion in one year, what would the new American tradition look like? The new American tradition might look like this, being rich toward God. I think that we as a, as, a, as a nation, but we as a church body have an opportunity right now to forge new ways ahead out of kind of recessional living that, that dictate kind of a, a new future, not just going back to what we were before a lot of our 401ks and money just kind of evaporated. We have the opportunity to do that. What if celebrating Advent 2009 doesn't simply usher in a new season of the year, but it actually ushers in kind of a new season of your life? What if some of the lessons that we learn from Advent Conspiracy stay with us beyond 2009 in December? And don't just awaken in 2010, December, but they stay with us through the course of a life. What if one less gift, and that's the challenge here, by the way, folks, 
Spending less doesn't mean taking it and cutting it 90%. Most time people who do that are like the people who join the gym January 1st and they're like at, you know, the burger pit on January 4th. You know, they're like, I tried it really hard for, you know, 48 hours straight. Like, well, you're not smart. You know, that's not how you do this thing. So what if one less gift were to go on this year from every single individual in this room? What if one less gift took root and sprouted life for the uns? Think of some of these uns, the unevangelized. What if one less gift meant you being able to buy a Bible in China that cost you $5 and it saved an unevangelized person? How about the uneducated? What if one less gift meant a gift for the uneducated? How about the unhoused? How about the unfed? Jesus told us this truth, that giving is better than receiving. And so the question on the screen is here, how do we get there? How do we get to this new reality? How do we create a new American tradition that looks nothing like some of the things that we've inherited with overspending and how crazy it's gotten? Luke chapter 12 kind of answers this for us. Uh, Verses 1 to 12 talk about this. Talk about fearing God's assessment of you and not people's. If you fear the right things, you start to get onto the right track. My question that would go along with this, Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I've got in your notes Psalm 27, 1. You can read that for yourself. But here's a question I want you to wrestle with. Who am I seeking to please with my money and my possessions? Myself, others, or God? Do you know that some people spend hard-earned cash out of fear of an opinion of someone else? Guess what? I've done that. You've done that. You're spending your hard-earned money because you're fearing the wrong things. Jesus, in this chapter, calls out the Pharisees. You know what he saw? He saw his disciples fearing man. He saw his disciples fearing the Pharisees. He says, don't fear Pharisees. Fear God's assessment, not theirs. Here's another one. Verses 13 to 34 of chapter 12, he says this, basically, Trust in God for your life, not in things. I've got Psalm uh, chapter 3 in there, but listen to 1 Timothy 6.17 says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Do you see that this idea of spending less is really a battle for your life? It's really not a battle for your pocketbook. Jesus was trying to save people from a covetous heart, which leads to death. Jesus was trying to save his disciples and instruct his disciples away from greed that so easily and insidiously and kind of subtly creeps in and takes over. So here's the question for you. Am I confusing wealth for life today? Really simple. Thirdly and finally is this, verses 35 to 59. He says this, basically focus on eternity. He's saying seek after the unseen. The Lord is coming back, so be ready for it. He says in chapter 12 of Luke, says those little things that you whisper, everything that you do is going to be broadcast loud and proud. So take heed. Be warned. Judgment Day is coming. I want you to wrestle with this apparent contradiction that I just said. I just said these words. Seek after the unseen. 
That ought to ring in your head like, wait a minute, that seems weird. It is. I want you to go after apparent contradictions in the Bible and don't just be left with like kind of a warm fuzzy. That seems neat. You need to go after that truth, dive into that truth, and, and figure out what it's talking about. 2 Corinthians 4 will help you. Colossians 3 will help you. They're written in your bulletin. 1 John 2.17 says this, The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So here's your question under this one. Do I really believe that the physical world is temporary? Are my eyes trained to see the unseen? And a bonus question is this. Why do you see no advertisers advertising these unseen qualities? Because you can't buy them. You don't really advertise for some of these qualities that God wants to give you, which is real life, because they cannot be bought with money. Have you and I unwittingly either been building barns or, catch this, maybe this is okay for you in your life, but maybe you've unwittingly been helping other people build bigger barns. And this year is the year to say enough is enough. We're going to stop that. We're going to change that. We're going to change how we do Christmas this year because we're unsatisfied with how it's been going. Band, why don't you come on up? They're going to lead us in a couple songs. I want to get really practical as we leave. I'm going to blitz through a few ideas. First John 3.17 says this, But if anyone has enough money or M&Ms to live well and sees a brother or sister in need and refuses to help, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us stop just saying we love each other. Let us really show it by our actions. It is by our actions that we know we are living in the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before the Lord. Here are a few spend less tips. And I know you've got more that you can discuss over lunch today. Here's one. Make a memory. You know what? There are a billion memories out there that are free of charge. Go do that. Budgeting. Just budgeting this year gives context to your giving. You just get to see how much you're spending. Sometimes seeing it written on paper will blow your mind. You go, wow, I didn't realize just how much we were spending. Number three is look for bargains. Number four, spend less by focusing on the real needs of those that you're giving gifts to. What if their real need is a companionship? What if their real need has nothing that you can buy, but it's relationship or it's something, something else? Number five is to offer your specific talent. There are cooks here, storytellers, uh, videographers, adventurers, babysitters. So many different gifts and talents that sit in front of me. What if you thought about, what is it that I'm good at in my family that I could offer to someone else as a gift? That's giving of yourself. And finally, we're going to talk more about this next, next week, but um, coming off of Advent Conspiracy's website is a, is a link to RethinkingChristmas.com. And at RethinkingChristmas.com, there's actually just a whole forum of different things that people have done to experiment with, with giving less this year at Christmas. Let's pray and then we'll do some singing. Father our God, I pray that we would be challenged and invigorated by this idea of what could happen if one less gift was bought this year. God, if we made a choice to stop playing the game, a choice to stand out from the crowd, a choice to ask questions that no one seems to be asking, 
God, I pray that this would flow from a heart of gratitude, a heart of worship, and a heart that says we want to lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven and not here on earth. God, we sense a genuine need for your grace here this morning. We sense a genuine need, Lord, to be content with what it is that we have today. God, I thank you for those who've walked down this road further than some of the rest of us that we can lean on and talk to and and sit over a cup of coffee with and pick their brain and get encouragement from. Father, I pray that our community groups would be both healing agents and loving rebuking agents this week, God, to get us in line with how you want us to celebrate your birthday. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.